Uh, you're catching us in the middle of a summer series. We've been on this summer series in which we've been exploring the names and attributes of God. We have gone pretty deep theologically and pretty deep into the Old Testament and brushed on all kinds of things. It's taken us down a kind of an exploration of sorts, a rediscovery is kind of what I've called it in my mind. It's things that we knew but we wanted to see again, to knew it had already been there, had maybe been taught in our hearts or we'd experienced, but we look at them again in a new and a fresh light, kind of in a rediscovery. And we've explored the nature and character of God through some of the names that he's given himself and that people have given him throughout history. And we've talked about names like Yahweh and Adonai and Elohim and Jehovah Rapha. We've talked about Jehovah Jireh, God the provider. We've talked about Abba Father. We've talked about the great shepherd. We've explored a lot of these names that predominantly the first nine weeks have really wrapped us into the Old Testament. They've, they've been surrounded by God the Father, creator God. Now we've found ways which are really obvious to tie them into Jesus because these names, they don't isolate God. God is equal in these three persons. And so in these names and attributes, we see Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God all wrapped into this one, but we predominantly focused on uh, those first nine weeks on God the Father, God the Creator. And we've, we've traced obvious lines to Jesus, but for those nine weeks, that's really where we spent our time. We spent a lot of time in Genesis, a lot of times in Exodus and places like that. This, uh, last week, Brandon, as I was out of town, probably introduced you to the idea that we've made this switch. We've sort of turned the corner a little bit. And the next weeks, as we wrap, move our series into August and wrap it up right at the end of September, are going to be focused on the, the names and the attributes that are explained and given to us when we understand the person of Jesus. So we're going to begin to make this shift to see how the names that we've been given to call and know Christ by teach us about who he is, the same way that we explored the attributes and names of God the Father. Now they, are, of course, are all wrapped into one God, right? Not separate gods. God is, is all one in three equal persons, but we're going to be exploring those names to the attributes um, that they kind of lead us to. And so last week, Brandon began with the name Emmanuel, right? That God is with us in the form and the person of Jesus Christ. It's this great Advent promise that God has not given up on humanity, but so loved humanity that he stepped into humanity through the incarnation that God broke into humanity and he is now dwelling with us. The person of Jesus Christ, we will call him and know him as Emmanuel, God with us. And that's our introduction point. We talk about the name Emmanuel around, typically around Advent or around Christmas as we talk about the inbreaking of Jesus into the world. Well, we're going to continue that thread as we explore the names and attributes that are given to Jesus by staying in that first moment of calling the prophetic announcement of Jesus as the coming Messiah. And we're going to explore a, a text out of Isaiah that's going to give us four names for Jesus. And we're going to look at the first one. We actually looked at all four during Advent, if you remember that long ago, um, and we explored these names, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, uh, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. We've explored all of them in detail, but we're going to pay attention to the first one this morning because it's the most unique as it tells us exactly who Jesus is and what he came to do, and we're going to explore the name Wonderful Counselor, who we are called to address and know Christ as, as followers of his. So we're going to be in the book of Isaiah chapter 9. So if you've got that and you want to flip over or you're on your phone or whatever, use the Bible next to you. We're going to be in it. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. And uh, we're going to explore that name and that idea of Jesus as the wonderful counselor. What that means for us and what, that, what we're called to understand and cling to as we address a God who is both wonderful and the incredible counselor. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity this morning to jump into your word 
to revisit a text that hopefully is uh, not new, but maybe we've seen or heard or explored before, maybe around Advent or maybe just in general as we're understanding the, the prophetic nature of the proclamation of the coming Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Lord, I pray this morning that as we open your word, you would teach our hearts, that you would instruct us, that you would remind us that that this Jesus that we love and that we're saved by and that we are called to is awe-inspiringly wonderful. He is the wondrous one. He is sufficient and total. He is king and counselor. He has a plan for our salvation and will never leave us nor forsake us. These things we're going to explore this morning, which are so true and so consistent and so comforting in Scripture. Take a moment in your heart this morning and just ask the Lord to teach you just for the next few moments to to let whatever distractions or whatever things you kind of lobbied in here with this morning um, to just be removed, to just peel those things away and let you just focus on God and his word. Ask him to teach your heart this morning, um, to instruct you through his word. Take a moment in the stillness of your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you. Take a moment and pray for the people around you or the person beside you. We do this each week. If you are here for the first time, we want to tell you this is just something that we do as a community. We want to be in the habit of praying for the people around us. Everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. So be in the habit of praying for the people around you. Care about their spiritual growth and what's happening in their lives, even if you don't know them. Just pray for the guy or the girl or maybe it's your husband or your wife or your kids or your friend. Just pray that God would move in them. Be a lover of people. Lord, we turn our time over to you this morning. For the next moments, I pray that you would teach us through your word, reminding us of some really simple yet powerfully complex truths about the person of Jesus Christ, who he is, what that means for us, and how we're called to live and respond. We ask these things in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So Isaiah chapter 9 is a prophetic part of Isaiah's calling. A lot of Isaiah's words were prophetic, but this one is prophetic in terms of it points us to the coming of the great Messiah. And it points us to the idea of who this Messiah is going to be, and it gives us this incredible picture of what Jesus is going to come and do. And it's oftentimes used around Christmas, around Advent, because it is this pre-birth kind of expectation that comes with the coming Christ. But it's important for us to look at it at other times and also remember what that tells us about who Jesus is. So I'm gonna, we're going to read it together and then we'll kind of unpack it a tiny bit here this morning and look at these pictures. But again, we're going to pay attention especially to the first name in Isaiah 9-6. We're going to explore this idea of Jesus as wonderful counselor. But let's look at 2 through 7 or 8 this morning. <clears throat> the people who are walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice in the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke and the bur- that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment soiled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. A son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end, and he will reign on David's throne over the kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from this time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So this is Isaiah making a proclamation about the coming Messiah. But in order to really grasp it, we have to have a little bit of understanding of what's happening historically. And we don't have to go too far back. The last few verses in chapter 8 are going to show us that. It's a really dark time in the life of Israel. They've got a king by the name of Ahaz who is doesn't follow the Lord, is not leading him in the direction of anything that God has done. He is very smart, as we kind of know from other historical places in Scripture, but he is a um, kind of a bumbling fool when it comes to believing and trusting and following the Lord. He was about his own movement, his own glory, and his own power. And they had gone back to worshiping idols. And Israel was in this place where they were rejecting God and they were following the ways of this King Ahaz. Now, all throughout Israel's, Israel's history, they've had kings that have gone up and down. They've had some that were great and loved the Lord and some that were terrible and didn't. And Ahaz kind of falls in that place of he was a king that loved himself. And so the people went down that road as well. And they were headed to a place of deep darkness. And it was a very dark time because they had turned from God. They had begun to worship idols and they had wanted the things that other nations had for themselves. And they were rejecting God. And part of Isaiah's call was he was making this claim, this proclamation, this, this vision that he had saying, the dark days are coming, Israel. And you better pay attention. Listen to what he says in the last couple of verses in chapter 8. Distressed and hungry, they will run, they will roam through the land. He's talking about Israel because they've turned. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. And there they are famished and they will become enraged, looking upward. They will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and they will see only distress, darkness, fear, and gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. So this is what Isaiah proclaims over Israel. He says, these dark days are coming because you have turned your back on the Lord and you are pursuing yourself. You are pursuing idols. You have given your heart away to another, essentially. And the dark days are coming and you are going to roam the land. And it's going to be difficult and you're going to be famished. And all you're going to see is fear and gloom. And the darkness is coming. Now these are, there's no real easy way to paint this as a great picture, right? Like this is terrible, fearful, distressful stuff. In other words, life was hard and it's only going to get worse. This is where Israel was living. They were living in these days knowing that darkness not only was upon them, but was coming even deeper. They would be in distress, they would be roaming, they would be famines. They would be living and the only hope would be fearful gloom. And chapter 8 just kind of ends. And there's no hope, right? That is until two verses later where Isaiah says, however, there is something on the horizon, almost as if a sun is dawning, right? A sun is, is rising over the edge. And he says this, he says, those people that are walking in darkness, right? They will see a great light. They're living in the land of the shadow of death, right? Light will Come, light has dawned. So we see this, this picture of darkness to light. Like from this deep gloom and despair and darkness, there will be this light that breaks forth. It will be a great light. And that those who are living in the shadow of death, a new light has dawned on that light of death. So we see this, this picture of light to darkness, right? But in verse 3, we also see this picture of joy from, from sorrow to joy. You have in, 
enlarged a nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice in the harvest, as men dividing the plunder. So if you're in famine and you're wandering the desert and all your hope is in kind of darkness and gloom and fear, right? He says that that fear, that sorrow, that, that sort of encapsulates you. There's a joy that's coming. That God's going to turn that into joy. It's going to be that kind of moment where you're celebratory, right? There's men dividing plunder, if you will, the harvest. Think about those great moments where you go from having nothing to having everything. And again, we don't do a lot of plundering, but you get the idea like I had nothing and now we've got all these things. Or a harvest in which there was nothing but grain in the field. We couldn't eat it yet. We couldn't sell it yet. We couldn't do anything with it yet. But when we harvest and the, <clears throat> the, the, the weather hasn't wiped it out or the, the climate hasn't wiped it out, we bring in this harvest. It's this great, incredible, celebratory thing in which God has provided. It goes from sorrow to joy, from emptiness to abundance, right? So we've got this picture of this thing that's going to be transpiring here, this picture of, of darkness to light, of sorrow to joy, and then also from oppression to freedom. He says, in the day of Midian's defeat, right, you have been shattered. The yoke that burdens you, right, that sort of yoke of slavery has been removed from your shoulders. The rod of the oppressor, the thing that was used to beat you or destroy you, right, is gone. All the things that were used in battle will be burned. In other words, he's saying you are no longer held captive by darkness and death and despair, by a lack of hope. There is now freedom from all of that. So if you're Israel, you're hearing all these things that are coming, darkness and gloom and despair and sorrow and all of these terrible things and oppression. Well, where's the hope? And Isaiah says, there's an answer. And it's going to go from, from darkness to light, from sorrow to joy, from oppression to freedom. And where does it come from? Well, it comes from the most unlikely of places, right? For unto us, or unto them, if you will, a child is born. So think about all of that great reversal, this dawning of light, this, this darkness to light, this sorrow to joy, this oppression to freedom is coming in a child which makes no practical sense by any circumstance that we can imagine, right? Like even the greatest hope that we have doesn't rest on the breath of an infant. But God works in these incredible ways. And so Isaiah says, hope is coming in the form of an infant child, which have been fascinating the Israelites. So I was that God was not coming in and going to blow everything up. But the hope was coming through this infant. And then Isaiah says, and this is what you will know him as. And he lists this list of four names. Of course, we're only going to look at the first one that encapsulate this sort of incredible picture, encapsulate this incredible picture of who Jesus will be. You will call him, or he will be called, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So this hope, this infant, this child that was going to go from dark, take us from darkness to light, from sorrow to joy, from oppression to freedom, is known as these things. He will be all of these things. He will be the wonderful counselor. He will be mighty God. So it's not just a human infant. He will be the everlasting Father, meaning he will have no end. And he will be the Prince of Peace. We've explored all those names in, at length, and, and this morning I want to pay attention to that first one, this idea of wonderful counsel, because it encapsulates the major part of who Jesus is. So what does it mean to know Jesus as wonderful counselor? 
Now, part of this is a disservice to us because that word wonderful really is a, a tough way to translate that word because in our English language, we understand wonderful as something really good. Hey, it's wonderful weather, right? It means the weather's great. Um, or you're a really wonderful person. You've got a good heart. People seem to like you. Never killed anybody. Like you're good. You're wonderful. You're great, right? Like it's pretty extreme, but you know, not doing anything terrible. You're wonderful. It's wonderful. Everything's wonderful. Meaning it's sort of this abundance of super good, right? Something is wonderful, it's super good. That's not really what that word means in Hebrew. It's actually a much different word. And, and we get a picture of the root of that word in this idea of the miraculous. And, and Psalm 78 has a great little picture of it, which I'll read real quick. Psalm 78, he says that he did miraculous or wondrous things. Same root word that we just heard is wonderful counselor. Same Hebrew word. He did the miraculous and the wonderful things in the sight of their fathers. The land of Egypt. He divided the sea, and he led them through and made water stand firm like a wall. He guided them by cloud by day and by pillars of fire by night. He split rocks in the desert and gave them water in abundance as the seas. He brought streams out of a rocky crag and made the water flow down like rivers. What Psalm 78 says is that idea of wonderful is the idea of miraculous. It's the wondrous. It's the things that no human could possibly do. That God, in his wondrous, wonderful, miraculous way, did what no human can do. When the Israelites, as we've looked at over the past summer, were, were pinned in by Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea, God stood the water up as walls on both sides, and the Israelites passed on dry land. He guided them with a cloud by day in the desert and a pillar of fire by night. In the middle of the desert where there was no water, he would make water come from rocks or crags. And he would take care of every need. He would do the miraculous that no human could do. That word wondrous actually means the miraculous, wondrous, or the wondrous one. So when we talk about Jesus as being wonderful, we're not saying Jesus is this great, super good thing, which of course he is, but it's such a mistake in how we understand the idea of wonder. In fact, it's a better translate to say Jesus is the miraculous or the wonder himself. He is the wonder. He is the miraculous. He is the mighty. Which, of course, fits right in Jesus' nature, right? He was born of the Virgin Mary. He goes through his entire life sinless. He heals the broken and the sick and the lame and gives sight to the blind. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And then ultimately, Jesus himself is raised from the dead. He is the miraculous, the wondrous one. He is the miracle. Jesus isn't super wonderful because he's super nice. Jesus is wonderful because he's God. Fully God, mighty God, wondrous, miraculous, awe-inspiring God. And he is that wondrous and magnificent and miraculous today as he was when Isaiah predicted and foretold and prophesied who he would be. Most of us see Jesus as this really great, super, kind of superhuman guy who reigned in super love, right? And while that's somewhat true, It misses the entire nature of who he was, which is fully God, miraculous, wondrous, awe-inspiring, wonderful God who does things that are impossible. And those things are things like this, taking darkness to light, taking sorrow to hope, taking oppression to freedom. Those are miraculous things. If you've ever been in a place of darkness or despair, of hopelessness or oppression, it's a miraculous thing to go from one to the other. It's a miraculous thing in a place in your life to be so sad, so broken, so hopeless, so fearful, and yet have God take you to a place of joy, of promise, of hope, of freedom. 
those are miraculous things. And this is what Jesus does. So when we say that Jesus is the wonderful counselor, before we even get into the idea of counselor, we're talking about he is the miracle maker. He is the miraculous, the mighty, the wondrous, the awe-inspiring, the one that takes darkness to light and sorrow to joy and oppression to freedom. This is Jesus. If you have any other understanding than Jesus, you are missing who he is. So when Isaiah says he is wonderful, he is saying he is the wondrous one. He is the wondrous one. And the wondrous one is an incredible counselor. Now again, when we think about counselor in our day and age, what do we think about? Yeah, it's all this is my mom's fault. You, know, you lay on the couch, it's all my dad's this, they gave me this, I had that. We have therapists. We think of counseling, counselor, we think of therapists. We think of that portion of us that has something in us that needs someone to help us work through it. And so when we glance at it at first kind of reading, we think, oh, Jesus is a pretty wonderful counselor. He's a great therapist, which on some level I'm assuming is super true, right? Because Jesus would ultimately be the one that works you through everything. But that's not really what this word means. It has nothing to do with counseling or anything that we would understand it today. It actually is a, 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 an idea that comes from a monarchy or a king. So the idea in the word counselor is actually wrapped up in a kingship. Now, if you think about kings in those days, all kings had counselors. They had voices. They had supporters. They had people that would tell them what they should do, right? They had a council of people that would gather around them and say, king, you should go to war. King, you shouldn't go to war. King, you should take this land. King, you shouldn't take this land. We should tax these people. We should not. They were voices of wisdom-ish, if you will, a cabinet of sorts, right? That's what a king's counselor, a king's council did. All the kings throughout history had them. So even if the king was super smart, like super wise, like Solomon, Solomon, who was David's son, is said to be the wisest man who's ever lived. But at the end of the day, Solomon was an earthly king. Solomon made mistakes, and Solomon had counselors. And then you got the king like Ahaz, who Isaiah is actually prophesying under his kingship, who was a bumbling fool, very street smart, but not smart when it came to leading and loving people and following the Lord. He chose himself so what that tells us is throughout history, we're going to have leaders, kings, presidents, people that are here and there. And some are going to be great and wise here. Some are going to be great and wise there. Some are going to not be wise at all. Some are going to choose power, over them, power for themselves over love for the people. Some are going to love for the people. It's going to be ups and downs. Why? Because they're all people. They're all human. They're all earthly. And one thing is always the case. They will have people, counselors, that will help them along the way. What we're learning in, in Jesus as the wonderful counselor is that we know that Jesus is king. He's the Messiah. He's the king of the Jews. It's his, the king of kings, right, as you read scripture. But not only is Jesus king of kings, he is also the only counsel that he needs. What that means is that Jesus doesn't need a supporting cast of counselors. He is the wise, the king, the real, the one. He is the counselor of counselors. He does not need an earthly group of people to help him walk. The disciples were not a group of people that were helping give Jesus decisions. Hey, we should probably run to Capernaum. It's a good time of year to go down there. And Jesus is like, oh, really? I've never, you know. This is Jesus who is leading and discipling them, training them, equipping them to become the hands and feet of who he is, to become the church. He is the great counselor. He is wise. He knows all and he leads perfectly without mistake, without fluctuation. He needs no earthly voice. He does not need your help. And a lot of times we approach our relationship with Jesus as if he's waiting on us to give him some help, some advice. Like, I don't know if you know about this, Jesus, but I really need this. 
And I don't know if you're fully aware, but this is really hard for me. Jesus knows all and is all, king of kings, needs no help. He is both king and counselor, and he is miraculous and wondrous. He is the wondrous one. So what that tells us is this, is that Jesus, when we say wonderful counselor, is essentially the miraculous, wondrous one who is both king and counselor to himself. There is no match, no earthly voice, no earthly person that can add, take away, or subtract from who Jesus is. He is encapsulated in this perfect picture of kingship and lordship. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need us. He is the self-embodiment of the perfect king ruler, leader, authority, miraculous, wondrous God. Now, as Isaiah's unpacking all this, this is the first picture we're going to get of this infant. To call an infant, right, these things is unbelievable. But think about it for a moment. This is the setup for the king of kings. A king that is in absolute control of all things. The sovereign God in which all things hold together because of who he is. In his very breath he formed the earth. He sets all things in motion that move. Your life is not beyond his control. Your deepest sorrow is not beyond a place of returning to joy. Your deepest fear is not beyond a place of returning to hope. Your deepest oppression, struggle, sin is not beyond the place of freedom. This is the king who leads and loves in a miraculous way. So what is it, the counsel that he brings, right? Like what is this actual counsel that the great counselor brings? What is his message? What is the counsel that Jesus brings to the table? Of increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over and over, establishing and holding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Jesus will reign He will reign upon the throne no matter what earthly leaders come and go. He will be the ultimate and true king upon which we, the church, will build our life. So what is the counsel that he brings? Well, the counsel that Jesus brings is contrary to anything that humanity can devise. And that is salvation. The people are broken. They are wandering in darkness. They are chasing water in the desert. They are fearful. They are in gloom. Their hope is despair. And yet Jesus holds the miraculous hope of salvation. And that salvation comes through God breaking into humanity, through the cries of an infant, that Jesus would walk this earth miraculously and perfectly, that he would ultimately die for the sin of humanity and invite humanity to come and partake in him. The great and incredible counsel is the direction that Jesus leads us to salvation, to call upon his name to become saved which flies in the face of all conventional wisdom when it comes to how we understand our religious lives. We are performance-driven people. We want to prove to God and to others that we are worthy. We want to show up to church and do the things that we're supposed to do so that God will know that I am trying. God will know that I'm putting in my best effort. That's how I prove myself to my wife or my wife to me or to our kids. Like We're going to do the things that make you go, thank you for doing that. I see your effort, and I'm going to reward you. It's how things work at work. It's how things work in our entire culture. It's not how things work in the economy and gospel of God. Because you can never perform or do anything to take one minute nano step closer to who Christ is. The only hope that we have is that Jesus rescues us 
through this perfect and incredible redemption plan that comes from the wondrous, mighty, king, perfect counselor. That he stepped into humanity, lived a perfectly sinless life, died voluntarily on the cross, that all who put their faith and hope in Jesus will be saved. So how do we go from darkness to light, from sorrow to joy, from oppression to freedom? There is only one answer. It's the wondrous one. The wonderful king who not only is king and counselor to himself, but created the path for salvation built upon his own back. So if you're sitting here this morning and any part of you is feeling like your heart or you're in that place of just hopelessness, just fear, that picture that Israel has where I just feel like part of my life is in darkness or I feel like I'm stepping into gloom or I feel like I've lost my joy or I just feel like I'm oppressed either with a sinful behavior or an attitude or a heart or at work or in my life or whatever it is, that oppression, that darkness, that despair seem to have a snag hold on your life. There's hope. And that hope is not in the fact that great things will happen one day. That you'll have this stuff where things will go from tough to easy. The hope is singularly in the person of Jesus Christ. That he is the only one that can transform darkness to light, sorrow to joy, oppression to freedom. The only option that we have is in the wondrous one who still does the miraculous things that he did all those years ago in this very moment to do the great reversal of even your own life. That if we put our faith and hope in the wondrous counselor, the King of kings, and the path of salvation that he has laid out, the great promise is that he will never leave us nor forsake us and that we can experience a great reversal. Not reversal of fortune, like all of a sudden I trust in Jesus and I get millions of dollars, but reversal in terms of outlook of life, that I no longer have to be slave to hopelessness, to fear, to darkness, to oppression. Those things don't own or rule me ever if Christ is my Savior, ever. They don't get place in my life. They don't get a foothold in my life. They don't have any kind of victory. But sadly, most of us as Christ followers let those things root their way into our life and we give them a placehold that they do not deserve and they do not have. But we put our hope and trust in Jesus. He roots out by literally the miraculous, wondrous way that he is, the darkness and the sorrow and the oppression. And he exchanges those things for hope and light and joy and freedom. And if you're living in any other way, you are missing the wonderful counselor, the wondrous one, the king of kings, the one that needs no earthly advice or wisdom, the one that has set the plan and put the plan in motion, holds it all together and calls you by name invitation into a relationship with him. Do not let the darkness, do not let the hopelessness, do not let the despair, do not let the oppression take foothold in your life. We have victory in Christ. That is the great promise. It is the picture of the wondrous one. So today, if that's what you struggle with in any form or fashion, call upon the Lord and ask him to give you that great reversal, that dawning of light, the understanding of who he is. Surrender your heart to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to believe and trust that you can take all of these things that the world has said are mine, right? The struggles, the fear, the anxiety, the darkness, the sorrow, the hurt, and that you can turn them into beautiful, miraculous things because you are the wondrous one. To my darkest moments, you turn to the greatness of light. To my deepest fears, you turn into a story of redemption. To the things that I'm yet so afraid of, you turn into places of power because you are actually the wondrous one, the wonderful counselor, 
mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. Wonderful counselor. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the moments today just to gather in your word. For the simple yet complex truth of what it means to understand you as the wondrous one. The one who himself is wonderful. The one who does the miraculous still. The one who has not forgotten us or left us behind. The one who still does the things that we only dream possible. The one who takes darkness to light and sorrow to joy and oppression to freedom. That is you, Jesus. You are redeemer. You are life giver. You are the wondrous counselor. You need no voices from humanity. You are both king and counsel to yourself and your counsel is perfect. And the way that you lead and the counsel that you bring is salvation. That if we put our hope and our trust in you, the promise is eternal life and eternal life beyond this place. And that life begins today, true, real, abundant, full, joy-filled life in the person of Jesus Christ in which darkness and fear or sadness or oppression have no place. We will not let them develop a root in our life. But instead, God, you are the wondrous one. You do the great reversal, the dawning of light, the rising of joy, and the glory of freedom. It's all ours because of who you are, that if we trust and proclaim in your great name, you are the wondrous one. As we close our time in worship, Ask the Lord to just press on your heart the things that you have got to release and let him turn over. The things that he needs to do a great reversal in. The fear to freedom. The darkness to light. The anxiety to hope. The sorrow to joy. Whatever they may be, ask the Lord to reverse them. As we worship and sing and release our hearts to the one who does all and holds all together a wonderful counselor. Let's stand together and close our time in worship this morning.
Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand this morning. So a couple things to remember. Next week, if you can, help us by bringing school supplies. We can support Lauren and uh, the efforts down there in McKinley Park. So help us do that. We'll try and overwhelm that community with, with school supplies. But take these truths that we talked about this morning, the things that we're talking about in terms of Jesus being the wondrous one, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, wrapped up in this idea of he is the King of Kings. He needs no counsel. He takes darkness to light and sorrow to joy and oppression, to freedom. And he can do those things in your life. That's the great promise of the wondrous one. Do not let those things take root or foothold in your life. Ask God to root them out and reverse them with who he is. Wonderful counselor. Go in peace.